Uh, can I say a very good morning to all of you? Uh, my name is Brian, for those of you who don't know me, and I work here among the uh, smart congregations, and I'll be bringing the new thoughts with uh, Control Well today. Um, in your Bibles, you should have an outline in there, uh, which you might want to follow, and we'll be, uh, there'll be quite a few cross-references today, and uh, hopefully uh, it should be all clear on the screen. But before we begin, uh, why don't we uh, start with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we know that your voice is the voice that spoke the universe to be. We know that your hands are the hands that flung stars into space. Uh, we know that you are a great and awesome God, and you are to be feared. And yet at the same time, Lord, we also know that you have come in the person of Jesus, your Son, uh, to come down to this earth, that you might rescue us from our greatest problem sin and that we can trust in you. And because of that, we can love you as well. So Father, please open our hearts, and you give us ears to hear, that we might listen to your word today, that we might see the nature of the world as it really is, and that we might be ready to come back to you, uh, to seek you afresh. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, how do we respond when things go wrong? How do we react when the world doesn't work the way that we thought it should? Now, what is our reply when our plans and dreams don't go the way we hope it would? All of us struggle with these sort of questions on a small scale in our everyday lives. You know, maybe the washing machine broke down at the worst possible time. Maybe it's just 10 minutes to your next appointment and your electrician or your plumber or your significant other hasn't shown up, like he said. He would. Or maybe you've come home from a long, tiring day at work and you just want to sit and relax with your newspaper. But you arrive home to bickering children playing the blame game. How do we respond? With grace and tenderness? love and patience, or with anger and grumbling, with impatience and frustration. Now maybe some of us are facing such questions on a bigger scale, so that's a serious illness, or a serious relational conflict, or a serious financial difficulty in your family. Or on the global scale, we know all about it, don't we? There's Earthquakes, tsunamis, nuclear meltdowns. How do we respond? Each moment tests us and they reveal something of our hearts. They reveal something of what we really believe, who we really are, what we live for. They reveal something of the sinness, of the self-centeredness we didn't quite expect to find that. And they reveal something of who we really think God is. Is he someone we really pay attention to? Or is he someone we take for granted? And such testing moments invite us to ask, who are you really God? And what is your purpose? Is there a purpose? What are you up to? And how 
Should I respond? Now we're beginning a new series on Joel today, and my guess is that many of you are like me. You know, Joel, where's that? See, this is not a part of the Bible that we turn to often. And it probably doesn't help that Joel is classified as a minor prophet, because we often take minor to mean unimportant, when really minor here simply means that it's short compared to some of the other prophetic books like Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Well, you know, we might casually bounce through your minor prophets occasionally. You know, perhaps to remind ourselves of the familiar story of Jonah and the whale. Or maybe you want to quote Micah 6 verse 8, you know, to act justly and love mercy when someone asks you about what's the Christian perspective on social and political issues. But then you turn to Joel 1 verse 4, and then you read about cutting locusts and swarming locusts and hopping locusts, and then you're tempted to wonder, you know, what's this got to do with me? You know, what next? Skipping locusts? Swimming locusts? Singing locusts? What's this, a, a manual for a flea circus? But look with me at Joel 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. You see, this book is God's inspired word to Joel and to us. And God's word is always relevant, it's always active, always ready to cut us and to heal us. You see, this book is part of God's unfolding revelation. And as we travel through the book of Joel over the next few weeks, we will see that it invites us to consider how we respond to God in the face of disaster and to consider His purposes. Now come back with me to 1 verse 1. And there we get Joel's biodata. You see, we're told his name, Joel, which means Yahweh is God. And we're told his dad's name, Petuel. And since he re- receives a divine message from the Lord to bring to his hearers, then we can reasonably conclude that he is a prophet. But that's all we're told about him. Nothing else. You see, Joel is Mr. X, his mystery man. Now compare him with Hosea, for example. So in Hosea 1 verse 1, we're told on the screen, Hosea lived in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And of course, the rest of Hosea 1 tells us about Hosea's astonishing marriage. So that's positively information overload compared to what we find out about Joel. We can probably figure out where Joel's base. He's most likely from Judah, probably Jerusalem, because he addresses uh, Jerusalem quite a number of times in chapter 3. Figuring out when he lived is a harder matter, though. You see, the scholars, they propose all kinds of dates. And I personally think it's probably more likely that it comes after the exile, since there's no mention of kings or royal officials, or indeed the northern kingdom. And Joel also uses a lot of phrases from the other prophetic books, which might mean that he must come after them, since he borrows from them. But obviously, I can't be certain. And in the end, for the book of Joel, it doesn't really matter. Perhaps Joel specifically or deliberately left out all those specific historical details 
so as to allow his message to echo down throughout history. So what is his message then? Well, it is a message of calamity. It is a message of calamity. And Joel prepares us for what he is about to report in verses 2 and 3. So verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Now, on December 8, 1941, at 12.30 p.m., the American President Franklin Roosevelt addressed Congress and via radio the nation in one of the more famous speeches of the 20th century. And this is how he began. He said, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. While Joel is addressing the nation and their leaders about their date which will live in infamy. Verse 2 again. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers. You see, it's going to be such a disaster, such a calamity, that is one, verse three, where you will tell your children, and they will tell their children, and their children will tell their children. On and on it goes. The people of God are not to forget. And Psalm 78, Verses 7 to 8 tells us the purpose of this collective remembrance on the screen from verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Verse 7, so that they, that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So don't forget who God is. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget your only hope is in God. That's the purpose. So how does God grab our attention then? Well, Joel begins to paint for us a devastating picture of judgment, of a locust swarm ravaging every single inch of farmland. That's verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, some people think what is being referred to here is four different kinds of locusts, and other things it refers to the four different life stages of the same species of locusts. And people also debate about whether the locusts are literal or whether it's just symbolic of an invading army. Now, either way, the big point is still the same. The locusts 
whatever they are, they consume everything, leaving nothing but waste and destruction in their wake. Whatever sin God's people had committed, here are the horrendous consequences. In 2002, a plague of locusts threatened to completely wipe out Afghanistan's farmland. So they took over the farms and all the uh, grass that the livestock fed on. And it was so bad that in some parts, it looked as if nothing had ever grown there before. And this is how one government official described it. I was shocked to see how the locusts had damaged them. What happens to these agricultural areas affects the whole country. It is amazing that human beings can travel to the stars but cannot find a way to stop this devastation. Locusts are bad, bad news. And Joel further emphasizes the overwhelming numbers and destructive powers of the locusts in verses 6. And seven. See, they are powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Now, a lion's teeth, I'm told, can grow up to five inches long, and are obviously very, very sharp. You know that they wouldn't have any trouble gobbling up your rubbery stick. No, you see, their teeth are designed for tearing and puncturing large chunks of meat. And the jaws of this particular locust are being compared to those of the lions. They are so strong that no fruit, leaf, twig or bark can survive their attack. Verse 7 He has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. He has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are meat. But there is a bigger shock still. Notice that all this is happening to God's people in God's land. Notice in verse 6. A nation has come up against my land. Verse 7. It has laid waste my vine and slitted my fig tree. Now the vine is often used as an image for uh, the nation of Israel, as in Psalm 80, verse 8 to 9. You uh, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And in Psalm 80, you see that it speaks of God's care and provision for the vine for Israel, which makes the image of the wasted vine in Joel even more startling. And you couple this with the splintered fig tree, which, which shows a lack of fruitfulness. The fig tree, fig tree is often associated with fruitfulness. And the picture is clear. God's favor is no longer with his people. And this begins to alert us that this is not just an earthly calamity. No, it goes deeper than that. It is a spiritual calamity. Verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering 
are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The locusts have left nothing which could be offered as sacrifice. The worship of God could no longer be expressed concretely. Verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes, there is nothing there in which they can offer God. And the grain, the new wine and the oil are all agricultural products associated with God's blessing in God's land. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13 to 14, we read, And if you indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in a season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in, and here are the three products, your grain and your wine and your oil. God has now withdrawn his blessing. And this is calamity of the highest order. And three times we are told that things are drying up in verse 12. See, the abundance of wine that tells of covenant blessing, that speaks of a relationship with God, where you can eat at the same table as Him, that shouts joy and celebration, it's all gone, all dried up. Gladness dries up from the children of man. With such strong language then, there's no doubt that God has gotten our attention. You see, all too often we forget who is really in charge of this world. We act on our own, not realizing that he has exclusive rights over all of creation. And he has exclusive rights to our love, our trust, and our obedience. But he also treats us as responsible individuals making responsible choices. And so sometimes he actually gives us our sinful desires. He lets us live out our sinful decisions. And that's actually bad news. Because although we don't often think of it that way, that is what the Bible calls Judgment. Romans 1.24-25 makes this clear. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature instead of the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So it's actually a terrible thing to let us live independently of God because the way we want to live it, it just doesn't work now as the professor of missions Chris Wright notes he says false gods destroy and devour our lives health and resources they distort and diminish our humanity they preside over injustice greed perversion, cruelty, lust, and violence. 
And isn't there evidence of this in our world today? They all point to what happens when the true God withdraws from our lives. What happens when we live in defiance of His rule? What happens when our worship gets distorted? See, how much heartache, how many tears will be saved if God's blueprint for marriage, for example, was followed? Or how much bitterness, how many wars would be avoided if God's design for relationships were heeded? How much fear, how many worries would be avoided if God's wisdom for life was taken to heart? Yahweh is God. That's the message of Joel. And to deny that truth is to live in spiritual calamity. And it can seem so cruel of God, though, to be so against His people, so against us. But the truth is, God fights against His people because He is fighting for His people. He allows us to experience life outside Him so that we would be driven back to Him. He wants us to understand that we were made for Him alone, to find satisfaction in Him alone, and to bring glory to Him alone. Yahweh is a jealous God. He's not just after a piece of our heart, He's after our entire heart. And so alongside this message of calamity is a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. Look at me, uh, look with me at verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Wake up, Joel says. Stop daydreaming. Stop being like the drunkards who are not self-aware, who are in denial of reality, of the God who is there. In fact, the drunkards will be the first one to feel the pain because the wine is no more. They will be dragged out of their comfort zone to come face to face with what life is really like. They will have to reflect soberly on the state of their souls. And they will will. But they are not the only ones. Verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O wine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. And the farmers of all people will be the most aware of just how terrible this disaster is. You see, hasn't God given them the land? Hasn't God promised to bless them? Hasn't God promised to give them good gifts? Now the only emotion that they feel is shame and failure. You see, their most basic crops, wheat and barley, have failed. Every year, the Dayaks of Sarawak will celebrate Gawai, Hari Gawai, 
marking the end of the paddy harvesting season. And they're singing and dancing and usually no shortage of wine along the way. And certainly there's no shortage of celebration, of entertainment. There's none of that in Joel. Gladness dries up from the children of men. There is no harvest. The farmers have been shamed. And then there are the priests and the ministers of the Lord in verses 9 and 13. Now there is a certain humiliation for them because they are unable to carry out their most basic duties. Their access to God is impaired. They can't offer the sacrifices. And the lament spoken of here is compared with the sort of bitter disappointment that a woman feels when she is prevented from being with the one to whom she is betrothed. And sackcloth is the only appropriate dress code here. But all this mourning and lamenting are not enough on their own. It must lead to true repentance by God's people. And so in verse 14, the command goes out. Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. God's people are to gather together in a special way, most likely for a day, to cry out to God. And it doesn't matter what class of society you come from, whether you are an elder or a priest, a farmer or an inhabitant of the land. No, all are to come together and respond, paradoxically, by going to the very person who has pronounced judgment on them. Because it is the very same person who can bring about deliverance for them. God. And in this case, fasting is the appropriate expression of their repentance. It is a sign of humility and of seriousness in seeking God. And this holds an important lesson for us. You see, repentance itself is not something we can do independently of God either. Now many of us act as if repentance is simply a matter of the will. Yet we can't just make a decision not to sin just like that. We can't will ourselves into not sinning. We are sinners at heart. And repentance at its heart is admitting that we can't do anything about our sin on our own. See, we have no power over it. We can, we can do better for a while, but after a while, we fall back into the same old sinful patterns. No, the only way to deal with sin is to go to God. It is to really, really trust in Jesus that through Him, we have really, really received grace and forgiveness and have total access to God the Father. And only Jesus alone can do that. You, you can't do that. I can't do that. 
You see, only Jesus makes repentance possible. Only in Jesus is the power over sin over us broken. Only in Jesus are we raised to life. Only in Jesus is our shame and guilt dealt with. Did you hear that? Only in Jesus, whatever guilt, whatever shame you feel today, only in Jesus is it dealt with. True repentance isn't about making new resolutions. True repentance never wallows in self-pity. True repentance drives us back to God. And true repentance is humbling because it means we have to admit the truth to ourselves that maybe we aren't as godly as we like to think or we fail to meet the standards that others and especially God have set for us. But that is what God wants from us, to recognize our own helplessness and so to trust Him for our redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 reminds us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So well, it's not finished though. Now, distressing as it may be, we know that this local locust plague, plague, whether it's literal or metaphorical, is not the end of the story. Because verse 15 is the real sting in the tale. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. See, this message of calamity and the call to repentance is significant Ultimately, because the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. Now, the day of the Lord here is linked immediately to this particular devastation by the locusts. But there is no doubt that Joel has more in mind than just the attack of the locusts, especially as you read on in chapters 2 and 3. So, we'll look at chapter 2 next week, but for a sneak preview, have a quick glance at 2 verse 10 and 11. 2 verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure? This is the day when God personally steps in, when the world would tremble, before him. It's the day where he will set right all injustices in which, in which he will deal with all evil. It is the day when everyone will have to give an account of how they have lived. People will acknowledge that Yahweh is God. Now, this is how another prophet describes what will happen on the day of the Lord. So, Zechariah 14, verse 9 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Everyone will know that God is the king. The day of the Lord will be great and terrible. And verses 16 to 20 brings us back 
to the present situation of famine and starvation and ruin. And it's a picture of the future judgment that awaits all those who do not turn back to God. Where else then but God can you call to? Verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water books are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. To you, O Lord, I call. Now it has been rather gloomy so far, but I want you to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. You see, as we read through Joel, we understand that this is ultimately a book about restoration. It is the turning of darkness to light. The end of Joel 3 will paint a very different picture from the beginning of Joel 1. In Joel 1, we've seen present judgment in the locust attack and future judgment in the waiting for the day of the Lord. But there is another judgment that we know about from the Bible. It is the judgment that God has taken upon himself. God cannot ignore evil. That much is clear. And we don't want him to, for otherwise how will justice be done? But in Jesus, God has now chosen to bear the punishment upon himself. He has chosen to suffer for our sake so that in Him, we might no longer fear the judgment of God. In Jesus, the day of the Lord is no longer something to be feared, but something to look forward to. It will be a day of abundant blessing, where there will be much sweet wine, where the trees and plants will be eternally fruitful, where joy and gladness will be found, and where the river of life will overflow. It is a day which we can look forward to with great anticipation. C.S. Lewis once wrote, There are two kinds of people, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God will say, Alright, have it your way. In a way, in a world where things still go wrong, and where the world is out of sync. Let us respond as Joel wants us to. Let us be repentant and hopeful. Let us be like the Thessalonians who turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the book of Joel. Uh, we thank you you reminded us that you are not a God to be trivialized. You are a great and awesome God. And yet, Father, we thank you so much that in the Lord Jesus, we can call you our Father. We thank you 
that when we repent and we believe you are faithful and just and forgive us our sins and we know that we are completely safe from the wrath to come that we are prepared to meet you on that day so Father until then we pray that we will wait for you patiently and we wait for you actively as citizens of heaven on earth please help us to keep living for you to persevere, to keep going to keep repenting and trusting in the gospel every day of our lives until one day we see you face to face in Jesus name we pray